Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Stanley F. Horn's classic, The Army of Tennessee, appeared in 1941. Thomas Connolly's Army of the Heartland and Autumn of Glory appeared 30 years later. Since then, the Army of Tennessee has languished in the shadow of its more famous cousin, the Army of Northern Virginia. For those of us who believe that the war was won or lost in the Western theater, and for anyone who wants to understand the inner workings of the Civil War Army, Larry J. Daniel has produced a welcome new volume, Conquered, Why the Army of Tennessee Failed. We'll talk with the author tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from 205 Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not from the campus of East Carolina University because it's summertime and working from home is the place to be, Uh, not speaking for ECU, not speaking for Coach Cliff Godwin or the ECU baseball team who fell valiantly at the Super Regionals last week to Vanderbilt. Speaking only for myself, and likewise my guest will do the same, as we always do in Civil War Talk Radio. Tonight is the middle of June uh, 2021, and it's the last show of season number 17. Uh, Before I forget, and I probably should do this every week, want to send a, a shout of appreciation to Andrew, who engineers the show every week. The reason you can hear my voice and I'm not way louder or quieter than anyone else on the show is because he knows how to make it sound that way. And indeed, the fact that he that I sound to you like a you know, virile 28-year-old rather than who I actually am probably is also his doing. I don't know how that works, but, uh, but thanks, Andrew, for all that you do for the show. 
Tonight's show is not sponsored by Durham's Water Putty. Durham's for when you're painting a shed in the backyard like I was half an hour ago and you have to fill some holes in the wood and you use a handy can of Durham's Water Putty. They're not paying for that announcement, but if I keep doing this, maybe somebody will. Uh, Using that product or doing anything around the house uh, handyman style reminds me of my dad who would have been 95 years old, his birthday would have been last week, and it's Father's Day coming up. I know a lot of us are thinking of our fathers. My dad was a World War II vet. He was in the 106th Division. Uh, Fortunately, he was not one of those captured at the Battle of the Bulge. He was actually a young draftee replacement who helped reconstitute the division afterwards. And I, I wish I'd asked him for more of his stories when I had the chance. Now every home project I do reminds me of him. He could seemingly do anything around the house. He was an artist and an art teacher by trade uh, and just seemed to know every tool and every technique. And I feel like I'm making up every move as I go. Uh, it's, it's just a different generation. Well, today is the last show of season 17, as said a moment ago. I'm proud to say we have made it through the year, uh, through the year of the great pandemic, missing only one show related to the pandemic itself. I hope having Civil War Talk Radio episodes to listen to has kept your spirits up uh, during this uh, certainly trying time. It has certainly kept mine up being able to bring it to you and talk with you once a week. I hope that now that it's over, you'll also be able to join me in travel. Uh, We'll be traveling this October with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, October 8th through 16th through battlefields of Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania. Check out Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours website for information. I will be back in the classroom by then, but it'll be fall break that week, and I'll take uh, some time off and... and, uh, be able to squeeze in a tour during the semester. So get vaccinated if you haven't, so you can join us, uh, sign up and come on the tour. I'd I'd be happy to meet you and and talk Civil War history with you. We will be back with live shows again, August 25th, last Wednesday of August. You can always see who's going to be on the show by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps the records straight. He does the same on the Facebook page of the same name, and he puts up illustrations of the books we talk about. Click on those. takes you to Amazon. If you buy the book that way, it sends a penny or two to the website. helps Mark pay for the, the upkeep of that. And you can also donate to Civil War Talk Radio itself. Uh, the book in libation and Durham's Water Putty Fund is available by going to the website. It's not a tax-deductible gift. It's just a gift to uh, show that you're listening, which is always welcome. By the way, we had in the past week an astonishing bump in the number of listeners. The number over the last couple of years has hovered in the uh, mid what would be five digits, 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 a month of, of hits on the, the station, which is, is a great number. And then suddenly it went up uh, last month to like 200,000. And uh, it, apparently the reason is something else on Voice America went viral. And uh, I, I don't know what it was, a kitten or a auto accident or something. I have no idea. Uh, but it caused people 
to go to that website in the hundreds of thousands. And while they were there, they clicked on other shows, the self-help shows, the terror of future apocalypse shows, whatever else uh, the station has. And, uh, well, and they checked out Civil War Talk Radio, so we got hundreds of thousands of people checking us out last week and the week before. And hopefully some of you have stayed and will join us in learning about this uh, important time in America's history. A person who knows a lot about that is our guest tonight, Larry J. Daniel. He joins us for the second time uh, with us just just a f- brief while ago, back in 2005. Uh, Larry, uh, are you there? Jerry, good talking with you. It, it does not seem like it has been 16 years. It seems more like 14 and a half, but uh, uh, it, it's been a, an astonishingly long time. Uh, I've been reading your your works in the meantime, but it's really good to have you back on the show. Uh, When we first talked that that many years ago time, one of the first things we discussed was the Western theater and how it didn't, uh, you know, more and more historians were coming around to the view that that was really where the war was decided. What's gone on since then? What, how do you see the the field in the last fifteen years? Are more people coming around to the Western thesis? Well, it depends on whether you talk to Gary Gallagher or not. Uh, <laughs> he, he clearly isn't. Um, no, it's true. You know, I think that there are two schools of thought, and um, I think that the one who really put flesh to the Western theater thesis is Richard McMurray. Uh, He's the one who really wrote about how the war was. uh, It was Tom Conley, who I think was the revisionist history, who, who wrote first of all seriously about the Army of Tennessee. But it was McMurray who put together a cogent thesis about the Western theater and how it was, uh, the war was uh, decided in, in the West, stalemated in the East, decided in the West. So it, a lot has been written on it since then. It, it really has. People like David Powell and others have, have come forward and we're yes. getting a lot of great, great scholarship on the Western theater. Uh, the, the book you've written here uh, is not just a straight campaign history. It has a, uh, a, a structure that it's quite different from just a, a, a sort of Bruce Catton this right. campaign than that campaign. The, how did you decide to structure your book the way you did? Well, I didn't want to simply add on to Tom Connolly 50 years later. Uh, right. A lot of new material has come out, and I didn't want this to be Tom Connolly plus. Uh, it had to be something very different. Uh, so we came up with this idea of uh, the Army of Tennessee and, and why it failed. Now, Tom Connolly, and it's hard to believe that his works came out over 50 years ago now, uh, he would have answered that question by saying, well, that's, that's very simple. It failed because of leadership. Right. Uh, it, it failed because of the backfighting and the backstabbing among the generals. And that is one piece of the puzzle. 
But what I'm suggesting and conquered is that it's a big puzzle, and that's only one piece. There are other pieces of the puzzle that have to be looked at, and that's really what the book is about. It's a war in society narrative. One of the things you say right at the start when you describe how the army is formed is that you suggest the army was was flawed from from its inception. And one of the most interesting aspects there was you talked about sectionalism within the army. Yes. And I, I, many years, even before, back when Tom Connolly was writing, I wrote an undergraduate thesis on the Eastern and Western troops in the Army of the Potomac and their, their uh, you know, political and social conflicts. Right. But you, you point out a much deeper conflict within the Army of Tennessee uh, between sections. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I think that there were at least three major sections that comprised the Army of Tennessee. The Lower South, the Upper South, and the Mountain Highlands. And each of them were very different. They had different war aims. Uh, the Lower South, and you have to understand that the so-called cotton states, the original seven states that seceded, uh, they looked upon with a great deal of suspicion to the upper South states, the the latecomers to secession. And um, they, I think, really did not see them as having the commitment to the war that they had. And that, in a way, that is borne out by the facts. Uh, for example, at the capture of Fort Donaldson, of the 16,000 Confederate prisoners, 10% of them, as they stepped off the boat, once they were captured, took the oath of allegiance. And those soldiers came almost exclusively from four regiments, one Arkansas regiment and three Tennessee regiments. Uh, it just seemed like they did not have the stomach for the war. And this kind of confirmed what the Lower South soldiers felt. Conversely, the Upper South soldiers felt like that the Lower South soldiers were uh, just cotton planters, that uh, they were the slave states. There were much fewer, many fewer slaves in the Upper South. If there were anything that the Upper South and Lower South soldiers agreed on is that neither one of them liked the Mountain Highland soldiers. Uh, they were very different as well and uh, had very different uh, war aims. So um, I talk about the fact that at the Battle of Shiloh, the Confederate Army had at least six different battle flags. And in a way, maybe that's symbolic of what was going on. It was just a very fragmented army that really did not come together unified, I contend, until uh, the uh, late 1863 of the Dalton, Georgia encampment. Let me ask about the, uh, one of the things that I find fascinating in recent scholarship is the argument that the Upper South, uh, including Kentucky, uh, had many slaveholders who supported Slavery, but thought that secession was the wrong way to go about it. And in their view, you know, Alabama says let's secede. Great. Now the border 
with the North is in Kentucky. And, uh, you know, now Kentucky, if it's a seat is on the border of a foreign country, they're the ones who are going to have bear the brunt of their slaves escaping, not the ones in the deep South. Uh, so, so they could have bad blood against the the deep South slaveholders, even if they both supported the same cause of of pre- preserving slavery. They they saw it very differently. But but that you you well, show how that play. Go ahead. No, no. Well, I think Kentucky presents a problem to the Army of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to understand Kentucky, you first have to look at Ohio. Ohio gave more soldiers to the Union Army than the states of Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Mississippi combined gave to the Confederate Army. Just this huge, raw manpower. And so how most of those Buckeye soldiers came to the Western Theater. So how is the Army of Tennessee going to mitigate that? Well, of course, the short answer is you you can't, but if you're going to even partially mitigate it, I contend that Kentucky had to give as many soldiers to the Army of Tennessee as Tennessee gave to the Army of Tennessee. And, of course, that did not come anywhere close to happening. In other words, Kentucky gave a brigade, about a 1,600-man brigade, to the Army of Tennessee. But what I'm suggesting is... They really had to give two 8,000-man divisions like Tennessee did. And uh, we now know that 25,000 Kentuckians fought for the South, 50,000 fought for the Union, and 172,000 set the war out. They did not fight for either side. If Tennessee was the volunteer state, Kentucky was definitely not the volunteer state. And... uh, They were quite content just to sit it out. And and which I, is understandable think, given their, their, their situation. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come right back and talk more with our guest tonight, Larry J. Daniel. He's the author of Conquered, Why the Army of Tennessee Failed. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention veterans, are you ready to be your own boss? It's time to launch your own ideas into reality. Discover your clean writing style. Gear up with Marine Corps trained motivator, Christina Silva. Christina is a positive energy promoter with a special gift in connecting with innovators. Get the Military Heroes 411 and glean from experts every week by listening to The Christina Silva Show. We're educating our veterans live on The Christina Silva Show, live at 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Larry J. Daniel, author of Conquered, Why the Army of Tennessee Failed. And it's a sign of respect for everyone listening to Civil War Talk Radio that at no point in the introduction or since then did, did we explicitly point out the Army of Tennessee is the Confederate one, not the Army of the Tennessee, the uh, Northern Army, because uh, we all know this already. Uh, so we're looking, uh, Larry, at this army. You point out that you don't share Thomas Connolly's argument that uh, it's all because of the, the upper leadership, Bragg and Johnston and so on. Uh, I gather then you would not subscribe to the theory that if Albert Sidney Johnston hadn't been uh, mortally wounded at Shiloh, uh, that he would have led this army to uh, a string of victories. Uh, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, we uh, I, actually we we have an authors group, and we just met uh, two weeks ago and. The subject of Albert Sidney Johnston uh, came up, and I had an interesting uh, conversation with uh, 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 Tim Smith about uh, this in front of the group. Um, I'm not a Johnston fan. Um, Johnston only commanded the Army, Army of the Mississippi, the predecessor to the Army of Tennessee, for 22 weeks. During that time, he lost the states of Kentucky and Tennessee. He lost an 18,000-man corps at Fort Donaldson. And despite the fact that he had the incredible good fortune of not having an additional Union division on the battlefield at Shiloh on the first day, uh, he still was far from defeating the Union Army when he was killed at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on the 6th April eight. 1862. So I think that um, now you could say, well, he could have evolved, and that is true. Um, Lee evolved. I mean, if the bullet that hit Albert Sidney Johnston in the leg had missed him and gone instead over to Virginia and, say, hit uh, Lee in the leg and June of 1862, it's going to be a slow-moving bullet, uh, and he had bled to death rather than Albert Sidney Johnston. Would his face today be on the side of the Stone Mountain? Probably not, because Lee evolved, and Johnston could have evolved. However, not all generals evolved. John Bell Hood did not evolve. So it's uh, what he could have become to me, is a non-historical question. Uh, he did have the favor of Jefferson Davis. He did have that going in on his side. But um, I, I, I'm not impressed with, with what I saw of him during the 22 weeks that he did command. 
Now, while you just in this book, you you argue that it's not just the upper leadership, although you do talk about that. Uh, but you suggest the leadership problem runs all the way through the army down to the the field officers, uh, you know, the, the regimental commanders, brigade commanders. That there there's a lack of of quality there. Why did this army not have the same kind of leadership at that level that the Army of Northern Virginia had? Well, because of VMI and the Citadel primarily, and because Virginia had a long-standing military tradition that Tennessee and the Western states simply did not have. Now there was a military, several military schools in the in the Western theater, and by the West, I'm talking about, of course, Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Southern Kentucky, that theater of operations. There were some military schools, the Western uh, Military Institute in Nashville, for example, but none of them were on the level of the Citadel and VMI. Uh, there just wasn't that aura of the military that was such long-standing in Virginia. And, of course, that's one of the things that Richard McMurray argues about in his book, Two Great Rebel Armies. He says that the fact that the Army of Tennessee lacked that aura was a great deficit to them. So it just, it was the whole historical background. West Pointers, likewise, didn't uh, flock to the Army of Tennessee. No. Uh, in fact, um, and I'm trying to think of the exact number, it seems, I have to read my own book to find out, <laughs> uh, it seems to me at the Battle of Shiloh, there were only 13 or 14 West Pointers in the Confederate Army at that time. I think it Fort Donaldson, there were only eight. Uh, it's a very small numbers. Uh, so now others would come on as time went on. But uh, no, they're, they're, uh, they, they simply, and, and that, uh, because they lacked that military tradition, McMurray argues, uh, they did not have colonels and majors uh, who trained the Army from the very beginning, and that that also was a deficit. They didn't have field officers, much less generals, who had military training. So um, it, it, it was a great setback for them. In spite of that, they, they hold their own through the middle of 1862, uh, and then we see in the fall the, the two invasions of the North, Lee moving into Maryland and uh, Bragg and Kirby Smith moving into Kentucky. The what what was the in your judgment? Why didn't this campaign of 1862 deliver the results that it it seemed likely to do when it started? Well, I think the primary reason is because of Jefferson Davis. He did not have unified command in the West. Uh, he believed in the departmental system. And, of course, E.K. Smith, Edmund Kirby Smith, uh, commanded in the Department of East Tennessee. 
Braxton Bragg commanded the Army of the Mississippi. And when the two armies came together, Bragg would command, but Kirby Smith would never come together. And therein lay the problem. So this lack of unified command was a serious issue. I would also argue that Bragg should have defeated uh, Don Carlos Buell's Army of the Ohio in in Tennessee before he went into Kentucky. Um, I think it was a mistake not to do that. Um, so, uh, plus there were th- the fact that Kentucky simply did not come to the Confederate banner like people in the South thought that they would. Uh, they lived with what I call the Kentucky myth. Uh, they lived in this bubble. They're, they're friends. They, they were Southerners. But we now know that Kentucky was not really a Southern state, nor was it a Northern state. It was truly a neutral state. So all of these factors came together. Now, you mentioned Bragg failing to uh, to fight Buell's Army of the Ohio, which later becomes the Army of the Cumberland, right. uh, in, in, in the fall of 1862 in Tennessee. He fights it later at, at Perryville. But the your your criticism of, of Bragg, that, I mean, that's one example, and you, you point out other things Bragg has done wrong. Bragg is sort of the, the whipping boy of uh, anyone who reads about the Western theater, much like McClellan in the East. But I found it interesting that you, you point out there's something of a, a renaissance in Bragg studies going on, that there are some authors who are trying to revise the historical record, uh, and I don't mean that in a negative way. All, all history is revisionist history, or Right. be writing the same book over and over. Um, but so, some are, are rethinking the evidence and arguing that Bragg really wasn't so bad. Uh, what, what's your view of that movement? Well, of course, the book that really uh, comes came on the scene in a big way regarding that was Earl Hess's book. And Earl Hess is, has become a major uh, writer, a Civil War writer, in question theory, but also Civil War in general. He's a, a major contender now. And he came right. out several years ago with his book on Braxton Bragg, and it's certainly not in any way a whitewash of Braxton Bragg. He is critical of him, but he, he paints a picture which I think is legitimate, that Bragg was a complicated individual. And I think that Bragg would have been better had he not had such inept corps commanders uh, that he had to deal with. I asked the question in Concord, if the Army of Tennessee fails simply because of leadership, then let's pose the question of Robert E. Lee had been sent to the West and commanded the Army of Tennessee. Would it have succeeded? And my answer to that is not necessarily because Lee would still have to have dealt with some of the same issues that Braxton Bragg and others had to deal with. So uh, 
I think that Hess scores some points on that. Now, I'm harder on Bragg than Hess was. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think he makes his point. And you can argue that perhaps he was not hard enough on Bragg. But but clearly, I, I have, and I've told Earl, I think that that's his best book. I thoroughly enjoyed that book. And I've, I've studied the Army of Tennessee for 40 years. I thought I knew where all the sources were, and he came up with some sources that I had never seen before. So I thought it was a really great book. Well, you mentioned if Lee had gone west, he would have faced the same kinds of challenges that, that Bragg faced. Let's talk about those. Um, all right. Uh, General well, Polk comes uh, to mind. <laughs> well, yes. Um, the, first of all, how you, you pronounce the name, it's not Leonidas Polk, like I hear many people saying it. It's Leonidas Polk. Oh. And... Uh, the other corps commander was William J. Hardy. Uh, it's not Hardy. And how do we know that? Because when Nat Hughes wrote his biography of Hardy back in the 1960s, he put an ad in the Savannah, Georgia newspaper saying, are any relatives still living? And it turns out there was an aunt who was living. She was in her 90s, and she had some of his papers. And she mm-hmm. told him, we pronounce our name Hardy. So we we actually know how, to, and, and it's Polk's family that says, we pronounce it Leonidas Polk. But yes, of course, he was a Polk, was uh, an Episcopalian bishop. And um, it shows that um, bishops don't make good generals. So, <laughs> And probably vice versa. <laughs> uh, well, let, let me ask. One of the things I, I enjoyed about this book was that you went beyond looking at the individual, uh, you know, the, these classic stories of the fight infighting among the generals, but you also looked at some structural issues. For example, the the army staff, uh, Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, is famous for having a very lean, probably too lean, of a staff. There are just a few secretaries to help Lee manage things. Uh, the art, you know, Bragg, although he did a lot of his, too much of his own paperwork, uh, it had a very large staff uh, compared to what one would expect. Yeah, I think at one time he had something like, I've been able to trace down 35 staff members, not counting many, many clerks. So mm-hmm. it was a very, plus two companies of escorts. Um, so he had a very large staff and interestingly, his army staff bickered at that level, just like the division and corps commanders bickered at a higher level. It just seemed like the, the infighting was endemic up and down the line. And, um, uh, but it, Bragg's staff was, not as as competent and highly trained as Lee's. Now, I think part of the problem is, as you said, Braxton Bragg really served as his, to his detriment, served as his own chief of staff. He majored on minors. He was just constantly absorbed in minutia and many times missed the larger picture uh, where he should have turned things over to staff. 
but he he failed to do that. Um, so there were consequences. I, it was interesting. Last week on the show, Kent Masterson Brown talked about uh, Meade at Gettysburg, and his book shows how Meade's staff worked, the Army of the Potomac staff worked, and it was you know large but but organized and trained, and people knew their jobs, and even if they didn't necessarily get along, uh, things got done. And contrasting that with what you described in the Army of Tennessee was enlightening. Uh, it, there, there are just as many, if not more, people on the staff, but as you say, they're they're engaged in infighting with one another. And that theme seems to run through the book. Uh, you also talk about how the cavalry force of the Army of Tennessee, which, again, in the East is a strength. You've got Jeb Stewart. Uh, in the West, it should be a strength. You've got generals like Forrest and Wheeler, but you've got that, that division again. What we'll do is take another short break. And, and come back and ask you about uh, the cavalry and many other things that are the right. reasons uh, why the Army of Tennessee failed. That's the subtitle of the book Conquered by Larry J. Daniel, who is our guest tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and we'll be back after this break. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Larry J. Daniel, author of Conquered, Why the Army of Tennessee Failed. Uh, so, Larry, we left off, uh, I raised the issue of the cavalry of the Army of Tennessee, which had uh, famous names, Wheeler, Forrest, Morgan, uh, yet it's not ultimately uh, as effective as it should be. What was the problem there? Well, first of all, it's interesting that Joseph Wheeler, who was commanded the cavalry in the Army of Tennessee, 
there are actually films of them. You have probably seen them during the Spanish-American mm-hmm. War. You could turn on YouTube and see what a really small person he, he was, um, stature-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a Bragg favorite. He was part of what I call the Pennsylvania, the Pensacola clique, uh, a series of generals and staff officers that, uh, that were part of the original uh, Pensacola Army. That in, When Bragg comes up to Corinth, Mississippi in 1862, he brings them with him. And uh, Joe Wheeler is one of these. And when he puts him in charge of the cavalry of the Army of Tennessee, it causes conflict right away. Many felt, the Kentuckians felt like John Hunt Morgan should have been in charge. Many of the Tennesseans, including the um, the Memphis Appeal, um, it felt like that Forrest should have gotten the tap. Uh, so th- there was infighting at that level about, uh, and, and many uh, there many write about it. Uh, that uh, Wheeler was seen as a as a pet of Bragg. Um, beyond that, I think that Wheeler was jealous of both Morgan and Forrest and the headlines that they were getting with these raids. He wanted to be on raids, and he didn't want the mundane duty of simply holding down the flanks. And it, it caused a lot of animosity. And, and uh, plus, as the war went on, they, they just didn't have the, the the talent that developed in the Union Army. Robert Menty and some of these other cavalry officers that developed in the the Northern Army, and and eventually. Uh, the Union cavalry uh, catches up and even surpasses uh, the Western cavalry. So it's um, it, it's an interesting, evolving story. Another story that I found particularly interesting was your treatment of religion in the Army. And uh, this gets to your, your avocation, as well as writing about yes. Civil War history. Uh, historians it seems to me, tend to downplay uh, the role of religion. Many of them uh, you know, don't, don't see it as, as big in the contemporary world or in their own lives, perhaps, and, so, and they don't therefore find it as big a historical factor. Uh, did, do you think your background helped you focus on the importance of religion in the history of the Army of Tennessee? Perhaps, but I think that I followed the evidence on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the question becomes, if there were so many weaknesses at the Army of Tennessee, then why did it take the Army of the Cumberland, which was better supplied, supposedly better led, so long to defeat them? Uh, and I think that uh, there were several answers to that, one of which is religion. It was one of the glues that held the Army of Tennessee together. I also referred to what I called the Brotherhood. Uh, that was another glue that, that held them together. 
Lee's army is seen really from the top down. In the Army of Tennessee, it's from the bottom up. But I do think that religion, especially in the Dalton encampment in uh, the early winter of 1864, because at that point, the three-year enlistments were up. And on the heels of the terrible Confederate disaster at Missionary Ridge, the Army was at a crossroads. The Army at that point could have melted away. And this is when one of the big revivals occurs. Now, a revival, a bit major revival actually had occurred in mid-1863, but mm-hmm. a much larger one occurred during this time in the winter of 1864. And the emphasis was on faith, duty, honor. Uh, you, you know, it's it's these things that also translated over to a soldier's life, duty. Um, so then the three-year enlistments, it starts a revival of the enlistments. I don't think you can understand this massive re-enlistment program unless you see it in the context of this revival that is going on. They were almost like religious ceremonies. There would be music. Uh, the colonel would get up on a stump and preach a sermon, and uh, they would hold up their arm and, and uh, give a pledge. It was almost like making a profession of faith. Uh, it was almost had religious overtones to it. So I think especially given that, uh, it, but for that, I think the Army of Tennessee could easily have melted away in the early winter of 1864. But you, you talk about the what you call the, the brotherhood of the, the enlisted men of this army, their, their morale, their willingness to put up with all the, the difficulties and the defeats and the privations. And, and religion certainly makes sense as one explanatory factor. Uh, did they, I mean, I, it, it, I guess I have to ask, how, how would they keep going in 1864, uh, did they they see any road to ultimate victory at that point? Well, I I actually have a chapter on that, and it Mm -hmm. depends on who you were talking to. Uh, I think that some saw it as a war to the very end. Clearly, they all thought that the 1864 election that if Lincoln had been defeated, that that was a pathway to victory. Um, Now, I have written that I do not believe that. Many major Civil War historians, uh, uh, Jim McPherson and and, uh, many others, Gallagher, uh, say, yes, you know, that uh, that was crucial that Atlanta, you know, I don't buy into that. I think that um, even if McClellan had won, uh, that the war still would have gone on. It, it just too much blood had been spilled by that time. But clearly many of them thought that was a pathway to victory. But I think many of them just saw it uh, and they say, we will fight to the death. 
They they didn't necessarily see an end, except just keep fighting, and many of them did. Another factor you you advance is the replacement uh, at long last after Missionary Ridge of Braxton Bragg. Uh, Joe Johnston is put in charge of uh, the army, and at at this point, you it seems you argue that there is some elevation of national spirit closer to what we see in Lee's army. You know, uh, Joseph Gladhar, who who you you mentioned several times in your book, his history of Lee's army says that Lee's army is the embodiment of the Confederacy in the East. Right. And you, you clearly argue that that's not the case with the army of Tennessee until Johnston comes in, Joe Johnston. And and then, then does the army at that point become more parallel to Northern Virginia? I do think that's when a sense of nationalism comes into play beyond evangelical religion and whiteness and that kind of thing. I think for the first time, yes. Uh, And you have to understand that Joe Johnson, first of all, he had been in Virginia and now he's in the West. So there's that connection between the two. Mm -hmm. And Johnston looked like a general. Uh, he, He had this aura about him, this gravitas about him. And uh, it's amazing how people had this attraction to Joe Johnson. And um, and beyond that, there are several things that he does. For example, these sham battles uh, that Hardy's Corps uh, takes on Hood's Corps in a sham battle, that type of thing. And there are many uh, mass drillings, uh, parades, and so forth. And I think for the first time, the Army starts to shed its sectionalism and become cohesive. Uh, and a, a unified battle flag, for example, comes under Joe Johnson. So now you could say later on, well, he militarily turned out to be ineffective and that's another story but in terms of bringing unity to the army yes i think you have to give him credit for that now i think that what will become the definitive book on joe johnson is being written right now by richard mcmurray and uh, it's a two-volume work and i'll be curious how richard treats some of this i was talking with him when in our meeting two weeks ago, and uh, I'd be curious how he treats uh, Johnston with some of this. That's definitely something to look forward to. We have just a few minutes left. I want to quickly ask, you, you mentioned briefly how whiteness was another binding factor for the Army, the sort of shared view of white supremacy. And, uh, of course, that brings up Patrick Claiborne's uh, argument that the, the Army should enlist African-Americans uh, to fight uh, at the cost of giving up essentially the institution of slavery. Uh, so was Claiborne just an outlier? Um, to a degree. However, Claiborne saw it. The question is this. Do you want liberation or do you want slavery? You cannot have both. And 
if you we, if you're willing to give up slavery, we can have liberation. And the army was actually very divided, and it, it leaked out into the army. Even soldiers' letters talk about it. Uh, they tried to put a lid on it, but it got out. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was division. Uh, there were some of the ranks who said, I'll take liberation. But clearly, the upper echelon generals were adamantly opposed to Claiborne's proposal. Uh, they wanted a restoration of the antebellum South. It was never coming back. You know it. I know it. Uh, but they thought that they could redeem that. So um, I, I think really it forever damaged uh, Claiborne, I think it kept him from Corps Command. I, I truly do. In this is hardly fair, but I'll do it anyway. In in one minute, it, this book advances a whole series of of absolutely compelling uh, flaws in the army. If you have to pick one, what what's the biggest reason why the army failed? Uh, geography. Uh, the the rivers went the wrong direction. Uh, you um, when you add up how many soldiers were captured at Fort Donelson, mm-hmm. Island Number Ten, Arkansas Post, Vicksburg, and Port Hudson, it was a total of nine divisions, sixty five thousand troops captured, defending the river rivers to the to the last, and. That in and of itself explains, to a large degree, defeat in the Western theater. But you have to look at it from Jefferson Davis' point of view. I mean, what else is he to do politically? Just marginally defend the rivers? I mean, that's politically unacceptable. So geography was a major, major issue, Uh, something which Lee did not have to contend with uh, in Virginia, I would. The James River at Richmond. It's not the Mississippi River at Memphis. No, and and his other rivers ran ran perpendicular. You could use them for defense. Co- correct. The, well, Larry, thank you so much for being on the show. This book is really enlightening and interesting, and you engage other authors in it. It just, I, I enjoyed every chapter. Listeners, you will enjoy Concord: Why the Army of Tennessee Failed by Larry J. Daniel. Uh, Larry, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. Thanks, Jerry. Good talking with you. And listeners, have a great summer. We'll be back on August 25th with more live shows. In the meantime, stay safe, get your shots, and thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.